0: How does the thrill of finding an acoustic pattern in your data set compare to the thrill of stumbling across a species in the wild?
1: Uh, I mean, it's the same. It's super exciting. There is something to be said that being in the field and all of your senses, you know, no matter how good machine learning techniques get, there's still this extra thing this, that humans have.
0: It's What's the Point from 538, My name is Jody Avergan. Today, we'll take a walk in the redwood forest north of Santa Cruz in search of the marbled muralette. It's a small bird. It's kind of not that special looking, but I now have a real soft spot for it. And I think, I hope you will too after today's show. The miralette's habitat is threatened, but luckily big data is coming to the rescue. And not just of the Muralette, conservation efforts all over the world are changing because of remote sensors and machine learning. Our hike into the woods to find one of these sensors begins in just a few minutes. Lace up your boots. But first, as always, a number that caught our eye this week, still on the conservation theme it's the significant digit. So, can I tell you a number? A number? What kind of number? What number? The number is 211. 211. WWF, the conservation group, recently found 211 new species in the Himalayas. Uh, there's probably more than that we just haven't discovered yet. Nature's always changing, right? It doesn't surprise me, you know, it really doesn't. 538's Christy Ashwanden is here to provide some context on those discoveries she writes about science and nature for the site. You're usually in Colorado, but you're here in New York. So I grabbed you and I'll just say a little bit more about what was discovered. And let me make sure I get this right, because on last week's show, we accidentally said Hawaii only has one congressional representative and they have two. And we heard from Hawaii. Apologies, Hawaii. But anyway, this was 133 plants, 39 invertebrates, 26 fish, 10 amphibians, one reptile, one bird and one mammal discovered over the last six years. And that guy I spoke to, Gus Hill. He wasn't surprised that we were finding new species, but I have to say I kind of am. Like, I thought we'd covered the world – how is it that we're still finding new animals even in 2015?
2: Well, that's a great question. Uh, one of the answers is that there are a lot of species out there. There's just an enormous amount of diversity out there and finding species uh, requires paying attention and taking taking down those data. And a lot of these species that we're finding are in places where there aren't a lot of people. They're remote places. And a lot of the species are fairly similar to other species. This isn't universally true, of course. Um, but for instance, the new bird species that was found that's described in this report is fairly similar to another one. So it really required paying close attention to find it.
0: It's, it's actually kind of a nice reminder that there's parts of the world that are still sort of mysteries to us. And I had always thought, well, the ocean was the last thing we kind of didn't know about. But this is, you know, a mountainous region. And we just had not put the eyes and the ears into that region in a way that sort of let us distinguish these new species, right?
2: Yeah, that's right. I mean, I live in Colorado. And I know for a fact that there are mountain lions in my neighborhood. I see their tracks sometimes times. I have yet to see one in person, though. And this is a species, you know, this is a big animal that I haven't seen with my own two eyes. The only reason that I know that these tracks that I've seen are a mountain lion is is that mountain lion tracks are a known entity. I know how to identify them. But let's say there was a species that was very similar to mountain lion. Um, It might take a while for me to even figure out that it existed because I haven't even seen the actual mountain lion, right?
0: And of course, uh, as we'll hear in a little bit, you know, remote sensors and new technologies helping with this detecting, where humans can't actually go. But put this in context, we discovered 211 new species, and this was actually sort of over the last six years. The report just came out. But on the overall ledger sheet, because we're losing a lot of species too, do you have any sense of the context uh, in which we should take this, this number, 211?
2: It really all comes down to habitat. And so in areas where we're losing habitat, we're losing species. In areas where we have sort of unexplored or probably, I should say, underexplored habitat, there are probably undiscovered species there.
0: But overall, are we losing more species than we're finding?
2: Yeah, that's the the consensus right now. Scientists think that we're losing um, somewhere between a thousand and ten thousand times the sort of natural background rate of species being lost. That that calculates. What do you mean our-
0: the natural background rate? The no- the normal amount that we would expect to just kind of lose?
2: Yeah, a thousand to ten thousand times the background rate. So what what would be happening if we weren't interfering? If humans weren't interfering with these habitats? And so that that breaks down to dozens per day. So this is pretty significant number
0: right so finding 211 over the last six years albeit in one small region but then losing dozens of species a day i mean it makes you think that there's probably species that we don't even know of that we're losing
2: yeah these areas that are relatively untouched that are you know those habitats that are being degraded we're losing species that we haven't you know we just haven't had the chance to fully explore them yet so we don't have a that that's why the the error bars on that number are so large
0: all right christy ashwanden thanks cool. for that's doing nice. this
2: no problem great to be here jody
0: Here's one of the coolest things about the marbled muralette. It's a seabird. It fishes out in the ocean, but it nests in the mountains. As a result, it was one of the last species of birds in North America to have its habitat mapped. Every other species had been tracked down hundreds of years before, but no one really knew where the muralette lived until the 1970s, because why would you look for a seabird's nest miles away at the top of an old-growth redwood? And that's not the only reason the murrelet is elusive. When it commutes back and forth from the woods to the ocean, it goes really fast and it does so at night. And of course, because of deforestation, the population is threatened. All of this is to say the marbled murrelet is really hard to pin down, which is where acoustic data comes in. Our guest today, Matthew McCown, runs a group called Conservation Metrics that is trying to gather recordings of the marbled muralette. This is what it sounds like, by the way, as it's flying over one of the sensors he's placed in the woods. Anyway, he takes recordings like those down from the woods back to his office and analyzes the data and tries to get a sense of the population of these birds. This was a really fun episode, if only because it was an excuse to drive Highway 1 on a beautiful summer afternoon. I hope you have fun too. I pulled off about 20 miles north of Santa Cruz and met Matthew right at the entrance to a state park. I hopped in his car and we started climbing into the hills.
1: We're just about to uh, turn up a road to go towards Butano... I think I say say Butano State Park. It's one of the least visited state parks here. And one of the loveliest. It's um, a big stands of old-growth redwood and old-growth Douglas fir. um, And has a lot of
0: Marble Merrelets breeding here. So I, I just have to say that we just met today. I got in your... Subaru off of the off of Highway One north of Santa Cruz. You had NPR on. You're wearing a flannel shirt. I believe that you are a bird conservationist. I, I kind of fall square in my demographic, I'm afraid. Yeah, well, you know, I'm the I'm the radio producer who lives in Brooklyn with a beard. So you know. Yeah,
1: I have to say, you picked a good day to come down. It is gorgeous here this time of
0: year. I mean, there, this really is. Way, way up on this mountain.
1: Yeah, this is still the main road, but you still got another one to go on.
0: Um, I mean, you, have, you kind of have to work for it, which is probably what makes it really rewarding, right, when you get up there. It is great. Is this property, this habitat, what's that?
1: That's a, that's a scrub jay. It's one of... So that bird is not really one of the the predators that impacts Marvin Marlites, but its cousin uh, called Stellar's jay. They look a lot like your East Coast jay, but they have darker a darker head.
0: So wait, one of the the cousins got named Scrub, and one of them got (laughs) named Stellar? So Stellar was
1: an explorer out here, a naturalist. Oh, okay. And the Scrub, um, the Scrub is found down here in the
0: Scrub. Uh, Okay. Seemed a little unfair.
1: (laughs) Well, you know, one's got a a fancy uh, top knot and one doesn't. Um, We're starting now to get up this river valley and have gotten into the redwood forest, and it immediately starts to get cooler, um, much more shaded. It's really beautiful. Yeah. It's mountain camp, as you can see. So let's go see if our uh, acoustic sensor is still where we placed it. (laughs) I hope so. That's one of the issues with with putting this equipment out in the world is that sometimes it disappears. People steal it? Yeah, you know sometimes people monkey with it or steal it you you tend to try to hide them but people are curious. Uh, Other people have bears uh, breaking into them in places. I'm sure that the acoustic profile of a bear is probably pretty easy to recognize (laughs) as it's breathing and and gouging your box, yeah Uh, actually we have rats and mice that nibble on the microphones all the time and that is, it can be terrifying when you're just sitting there listening and suddenly this huge thing Thing starts, starts gnawing on your ears. All right, so tell me about the Marbled murrelet. So the marble murrelet is a is a small seabird um, and about the size of a quail, I'd say. So
0: what's the size? What's the size of a quail? 180
1: grams, 190 grams, uh, like a little larger than a robin. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, a, a good-sized chicken chick, you know. Much smaller than chickens. They have these kind of... They look like a cigar with these little um, saber wings. They're they're really cute. Um, mostly seen out at sea, um, or mostly not seen by anybody. The general public, people tend not to ever see a, a murelet. Um, I've only seen a few. And their numbers are declining. So they're on the federal endangered species list that's threatened. Exactly... How quickly and by how much they're declining, we don't know because of the challenges of monitoring their populations well.
0: Right. That's kind of why you're in business, exactly. is to answer that question. But do you have any sense of how many there are of them? I mean, what does it mean to be on the endangered species list?
1: Well, so the number, if I remember correctly, the number for the Santa Cruz Mountains, the estimate is about 1,000 individuals.
0: Just 1,000 of those yeah. birds. So, so, and, so I don't think I should get my hopes up about seeing one right and you're
1: now. Not see, and you're not going to see them during the day. So you won't
0: <laughs> You want to come back At 4am Yeah well,
1: let's go back At 4am The sensor is right up here On this tree yeah. <laughs> I'm glad I see it so- I'm always glad to see The little green box um,
0: And here it is This is a song meter so I don't know. It's, it's
1: lunchbox size,
0: I guess yeah. I'd say. Yeah, it's lunchbox size. It's got microphones sticking out both ends. Yeah, it's got double on either side. Yeah. So one of the challenges on on this show is it's a podcast, but algorithms don't really make very interesting noise. Right. And so this is about as as exciting as it gets. It's hiking into the <laughs> woods for a little bit and finding a box with some microphones sticking out of it, stuck to a tree. Um, I'm
1: but, glad we can help. Let's right, go. Let's, uh, let's go about. open this thing up.
0: I can confirm that you're not using some sort of special (laughs) conservationist screwdriver. This is just a regular screwdriver, and it has four regular D batteries. So there's two microphones sticking out the sides of the box.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, we're recording for this project. We're recording in stereo, um, where we have one microphone facing upstream and one microphone facing downstream in these river valleys.
0: So, so for this one, if the if the bird is flying down towards the ocean or coming, coming back at the end of the day, you can catch it. We
1: should be able to catch that difference in timing as it, as it passes by in the Doppler. So, yeah, that's the, that's the idea. This is the first time we've done it, so let's see how it goes. But um, I've already heard it. You can hear a bird going upstream or downstream and learn a lot more about who it is that you're listening
0: to. What do you mean? Who it is that you listen wow, to? Which, but what the birds are doing? <laughs> Sorry, to anthropomorphic. Not the actual. Oh, yeah. Not the. But you can't tell the actual bird. You can't so, be like, oh, this was the bird commuting. You know, that's a, in the morning.
1: Yeah, right. I mean, so we can't tell individuals to do that. You could do that, and I imagine in theory, you should be able to measure individual variation in in all these different animals that we're working on.
0: But to, like, do, like like an acoustic fingerprinter.
1: Right. Exactly. I mean, you. I can recognize my voice. My family can recognize my voice. Um, you know, if someone calls you on the phone. You. you a lot of times you know who it is um, before they say their name. So obviously there is there are individual variations in calls. To do that well, though, you need to actually sample the variation and have known individuals that you're following through time and saying, okay, the variation in individuals is this and the variation among individuals is this. And so that's like... That's work I did for my PhD. That's not something that we can automate
0: at the moment. This is the point in every episode of this podcast where we just say sample size.
1: (laughs) Sample size, exactly. Sample size and knowing individuals. In animals, the real problem is uh, having marked individuals that you are encountering repeatedly so that you know um, you can start to measure all the variation in individual behavior, not only in communication, but in territory size, foraging strategy, all that kind of stuff. And so, you know, we've been talking... We work entirely in the acoustic sort of channel at the moment. But in truth, this method can be applied to sort of a wide variety of sensors that are collecting data. And, you know, as the Internet of Things, you know, continues to sort of drive down the price of cheap sensors and increase their capabilities, um, we are really looking at ways that we can use all those new sensors.
0: Do you envision a day where you could just send a kid out to an amateur and just say, here's a sensor, or how to build your own sensor, throw it on a tree and see what you find?
1: Yeah, definitely. People are already doing that. Cornell Lab Ornithology has some projects where they have people counting uh, migratory birds, building their own microphones, putting them on their roofs, and counting these calls of migratory birds flying over their houses. So, yes, it's exactly the future I envision, is all these sensors spread across the landscape, collecting information, visual information, weather information, acoustic information, and synthesizing all that together to get a picture of what's happening with, with the natural community across the landscape.
0: Before this data-driven uh, collection of information about birds, mm-hmm. w- how was it done? Mostly p- people. So you, ha- you train young
1: biologists... Um, to come out here at 4 in the morning
0: before dawn. So someone would walk up the trail we just walked up. Yep. Where where would they?
1: Well, sometimes they camp. This this is a nice site because they can camp here. But a lot of times, yeah, you have to drive up, open up gates, um, You know, get up at 3 to get up into, into the forest patch. And you then stand there. Um, it's one person. And there's a, a whole protocol that's been developed um, how to monitor mirrorlets. The thing about it is, you you need to train all those staff members, and in a summer, you know, with the amounts of money again we have for conservation, you can only hire a handful of field techs to do this work. So, what we're trying to do is actually compare what you can get with sensors to that methodology, and and figure out how best to use this new tool. I don't, again, I don't think this new tool is going to completely replace uh, those field teams, but it can certainly help. Uh, expand their footprint
0: you know i have to say that the notion of putting sensors out in the wild and trying to track animals that way doesn't actually strike me as that new right so what's new here
1: the volume of data and the the price and capabilities of the sensors so yeah people have been doing this forever there's a guy named ted parker a really famous ornithologist worked in the amazon and he used to bring tape recorders into the Amazon with them and then go back in the lab because it's so complex there. And so he would go back in the lab and listen to the recordings again and kind of redo his point counts over and over again and rewind it. So this is just, you know, just one step further. What's happening is it's now possible for small groups to put out sophisticated sensors and collect a lot of data the bottleneck is still in how to analyze those data.
0: And the, the interpretation of that data is what's happening back at, back at your office, what, 20 miles down the road?
1: Exactly right. I mean, that's what, we, that's what we're providing at Conservation Metrics, is that expert opinion, expert knowledge about the, the whole processing side of things, so detecting the species of interest, and then the expert analysis
0: of what does all that mean. We'll visit Matthew's office and take a look at that data in a minute, but first, support for What's the Point comes from Dropbox for Business. And here's what we'll do. Right now, I'm uploading a bit of extra audio from this week's show to Dropbox. When I was visiting the Conservation Metrics office, Matthew and his team played me a bunch of other different bird calls. And that's a healthy bird. That's a, that's a, that doesn't sound good to me, to, I'll be perfectly honest. <laughs> So if you want to hear some of those other birds, I'm putting it on Dropbox for everyone to listen to. And while that's uploading, let me tell you about Dropbox for Business, which helps you work the way you want. It's got all the things you love about Dropbox with enterprise-grade security and administrative controls. You and your team can work together on any file type on any device simply and securely. There are, of course, sharing controls like expiration dates and passwords for shared links. Basically, they figured out how to work together on the cloud. Over 100,000 businesses already use Dropbox for business. Yours should, too. And that audio is already uploaded. I'm sharing it now, which is very easy to do. You can find a link on our website, 538.com slash podcasts. podcast. Take a listen. And again, thanks to Dropbox for business. Now back to our trip to California. We came down from the mountain and got in our cars. Matthew gave me directions to his office, which is on the outskirts of Santa Cruz. I got a little lost on my way there. There was a lot of construction going on around his building, but eventually I tracked him down. This is your little, yeah, little you home, right?
1: Yeah, I'm glad you found us in our in our construction chaos here at. Uh, but you're near the sea. Which we is are. Nice. We have this the beautiful view of the ocean and the Younger Lagoon, which is a reserve here at
0: UC Santa Cruz. So, do the birds ever come to you out here?
1: Oh yeah, it's it's like the total distraction. It's the worst part about being here. And as you'll see, my office has a huge window. And right now, we have dragonflies moving through, butterflies moving through, hawks moving through. So it's um, a constant distraction here.
0: Sounds like nice. all right. Let's let's see yeah, where this in. data ends up. Yeah. So
1: here we are, and here's uh, some of our team: David Savage, hi, Alexis Earl, two hi. of our analysts. They're busy working away on our um, acoustic data.
0: And I can attest that on bo- on all four of their screens, <laughs> there is data. And, being uh, crunched.
1: And come on over here. I, I actually, um, we can look at data from the site we just visited up um, in Gaza's Mountain Camp. I pulled up some of the data we got from
0: earlier in the season. Like, actually describe what, what I'm looking at here. There's <laughs> one, two, <laughs> three, four, five, six, seven, It doesn't 16, quite work for radio. Right, just, no, but there's 16 rectangular uh, you know, boxes uh, they have wonderful colors, but what do these colors and patterns so, mean?
1: So, you know, as we showed you in the field, we basically deploy these acoustic sensors. And so at the end of the day, we end up having thousands of hours of recorded data. So, we bring it into the lab, put it on our computers, and we turn it into what are called spectrograms, which is basically a graph of the sound. So, you have, you can imagine along the x axis, the bottom line there, you, you have time, and along the y axis, it's pitch or frequency. And so, what you're seeing here are 16 two second windows. So, we're basically
0: taking our field recordings. Slicing them into two second windows. And the hope is that somewhere in the thousands and thousands of hours of recording, split into two second windows, <laughs> one of those two second windows will feature the sound exactly. of. Exactly. And this so, bird.
1: you know, so, so this tool basically allows us to sort these two second windows according to certain um, features. And so we use something called deep learning, deep neural networks. So let's say you wanted to look for something that was bursts of energy like a a pulse train. And I'll show you here.
0: So you just sorted, and now on the screen we have 16 boxes that all kind of feature a similar acoustic pattern uh, in two-second increments. But this is all culled from different parts in the...
1: And so these are all different times. Like, this could be different days, different times of the day. And we have these pulses that I think... Let's play them. I think they're... uh, These
0: are J's. These are Stellar's J's. A harsh... So are you at the point where you can recognize this by sight? Do You yeah. see a pattern and you know, okay, that's it.
1: basically yeah. We um, some of these I don't know, and I'm uh, you know I'm looking at some of these and I'm saying, ooh, I need to brush up on some of my. My forest birds here. Um, this is the
0: geeky kind of bird watching.
1: <laughs> it, it's sitting it, in front of
0: a computer and looking at acoustic patterns. And it's pretty amazing. I mean, we are such
1: visual creatures.
0: You know? It's funny. I mean, that happens to me when I edit uh, this show as well. I can often edit by sight. You mm-hmm. can see where someone takes and a you, pause you, or a yeah. breath, and you can just often just make the edit without actually it's, listening uh, to it. Uh, everyone in this
1: trailer has become attuned to sound, and we, you know, we are often closing our eyes and listening to these sounds. But our. our process is actually a image processing technique. So we actually draw these spectrograms, pull these features out, and then are searching for patterns based on these visual representations of sound. So this is just another representation of the sound. And here, I think this is a robin down here. So that's I love these little things. These are uh, This is a Western screech owl. Um,
0: so th- that's different ways we can explore our data. But I imagine there was probably a challenge even identifying what the acoustic pattern of this bird was to begin with. I mean, how long did it take you before you even knew what to search for within the data set?
1: Well, you know, birds are something that have been explored and studied Extensively. So, when you're working with birds, you're kind of already ahead of the curve. Um, so, there are lots of sound libraries, there's lots of folks who go out and take recorders like yours and go into the field and make recordings of birds. But what we really needed to do, and what we've been figuring out here at Conservation Metrics, is how to teach the computer what we're looking for, and how to basically discriminate between marvel murlet calls and all the other things we've been looking at right now, the Robin calls. Um, there's a bunch of Thrush calls that are up here that are similar, and that's the real challenge here. Um, and that's where we bring in um, the deep learning, the machine learning approaches. And so what I'll show you next is we have built basically some recognition models to look for calls of Marvel Mullets. Um, and so what we do is we, we set up a control data set that has all kind of representative samples of all the sounds we have out in the project site. Because what we want to do is train a model to recognize Marvel Mullet calls, we often have to show it what is not Marvel Mullet calls and that is well sampled in the control data set. You know, and it's not perfect. And I don't know that it ever will get perfect. You're always going to have this. It's the same situation you have in other fields when you're dealing with statistics or math. It's like you're always going to have your false positives and your false negatives, and your game is to really try to balance those and get some information.
0: But is your computer getting smarter? The computer's getting a lot smarter. So let's see. Yeah, I, I, we've been sitting here for almost 20 minutes, and I want to hear this thing. Yeah. now. <laughs> so, so here we go. So we've already made a, a detection
1: model. We actually made it uh, this week. We've just started making a detection model. So this is some of the first versions of um, what we're finding, and we've sorted them now. And here you go. This is uh, a, Marvel, a whole page of Marblemullet calls.
0: So, ju- so just to describe what the what the s- Acoustic pattern. The spectrogram looks like uh, to just my completely amateur eyes. It <laughs> looks like a lot of the activity is at a higher pitch than some of the owls. Maybe we were looking yeah. at. And so you're,
1: you're basically in this area of three to four thousand hertz. Um, and there's this kind of band. You can see they look like a parenthesis on its side. Is kind oh, of oh, so it that's there. it right there. Those yeah. two little bands. That's uh-huh. our bird. So there. So there's just sort a of series of them. And these are probably birds that are in flight flying over our survey site. And you can see a little bit of reverberation there behind them, you know, as, as the sound bounces off the trees.
0: And how often do you get something like that? You know the bird we're looking for in the clear or how often are there also hummingbirds and insects and other things going on?
1: Right, I mean it really depends on when and where you're recording so here, um, you know, our redwood forests are amazing, they don't have a huge diversity of birds um, at this same time of the morning birds are just starting um, their kind of dawn chorus here, all of our birds are kind of waking up, and that's why you see some of these hummingbirds and things. Um, and it can start to get much more complex. You want to play one of those kind of more muddy samples? Yeah, let's take a look. Here's one that has a little more complexity to it. It still looks pretty good, though.
0: Even I can tell that that was much more complicated and a lot more going on in that sample. But the computer is trained to know that somewhere in there is our bird. Basically. However, it's not perfect.
1: So we are missing... Some calls, and we know that, and that 's part of our job here is to figure out how well the model is working. We basically review what the model is telling us, weed out any false positives so things where it got it wrong then we we export this information and we work in a um, something called uh, R, which is a statistical um, Program.
0: If there's any podcast where people get that <laughs> no, reference, it's yeah. this one. So we basically do the rest of our, our data crunching in R. So do you remember the first time you sat down with one of these data sets and found the the yeah. mirrorlet? I was really excited um, because I'd just gone through about <laughs> ten thousand uh, Robin calls, and uh, so yeah, I do remember it and. Uh, it was great you 're a birder, right you love birds you 've gone out on the field and just done bird watching. so how does the thrill of finding an acoustic pattern in your data set compare to the thrill of stumbling across a species in the wild
1: uh, i mean it 's the same it 's super exciting. There is something to be said that being in the field and all of your senses you know when you, when you when 're seeing something visually smells, you feel the air and you hear things it 's amazing of course and i you know that 's a good point to 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 say like these tools are not going to replace traditional field surveys by biologists. You know, no matter how good machine learning techniques get, there's still this extra thing this, that humans have. The ability to detect something that shouldn't be there, which is very hard for computers to do, the novelty detection problem. Uh, you know, you're, you're in Southern California and you see a walrus that is something people are going to notice, the computer might just strip right over it and say, oh, that's not the the kind of seal that you're looking for.
0: It hasn't even occurred to you to tell the computer to look for that species.
1: Exactly. And that's, a, again, another active area of research in in this area. It's like, how do you detect novel classes?
0: Are there parts of the community that are still skeptical of acoustic-backed data?
1: Uh yeah but I think, in a healthy way, i mean i don't think anyone really has any questions about the value potential value of this. I think that there are a lot of active areas of research of what how best to apply this tool
0: but other people who say no, showing me this acoustic pattern doesn't count as proving that this bird is you know someone needs to see it
1: uh, yes, so what we so the next step that's science basically, right so the next step was. They said, oh, wow, they're there, and they're, it looks like they're there for our whole breeding season. So what they did is the next year, they went out and did surveys. They didn't find any traditional surveys. Then the following year, they went out and uh, and did surveys, and they found a bird on a nest with an egg. And there you go. That's then the the complete chain of evidence. <laughs>
0: happening in astronomy is they're opening up these data sets, right? And letting the crowd crowdsourcing the the wading through that raw data. Is that something that could work in this field at all?
1: Yeah, I mean, people are already doing that. Um, We aren't doing that because we have sort of short time windows. Our clients have a question. We turn it around quickly. But the citizen science approach is is a great approach to this. Um, I know the Smithsonian uh, has some citizen science projects where they're using both acoustic and camera trap data, so sensors that are out in the field that take pictures of things that are walking by. Um, and, you know, out on the Serengeti, there's a bunch of camera trap data that they're having people classify. It's a great approach. Um, it just sometimes takes a little longer to get things. And, you know, people have varying skills at
0: that as well. Finish this chain for me from the field to the data set to identifying a species, mm-hmm. maybe getting a sense of its population. How does it connect to the larger conservation efforts?
1: And that's the, uh, well, thanks for asking. I mean, the reason we started this company, we're a, we're a for-profit company, but we're a for-profit social venture. We're really mission driven. And our goal is to improve conservation by improving wildlife monitoring. So counting plants, animals is really tricky business. And so what we want to do is do that part well and then have that feedback into an iterative process to improve conservation.
0: Is there any like conventional wisdom about conservation that you feel like you may upend because of this st- more statistical approach? Yeah, I don't know if it's conventional
1: wisdom, but there's something that's that really hampers conservation innovation, I think. And that is the idea that, okay, we have a limited amount of money to spend on conservation. Um, We know that this project is going to be useful, getting rid of rats. It's obvious, right? Let's not spend any money on monitoring that. Let's spend all that money on getting rid of rats. Let's Let's spend all the money on the action. And that, at some level, you know, when you really are working with tiny amounts of money or small amounts of money, that may seem like a logical argument, but long term, that doesn't help the field. But if you have good monitoring plans that are being carried out at scale, then you can figure out um, what's working, what's not working. And you can also figure out other things about populations. What, how are populations doing? You can start to figure out that some common species is declining
0: before it's too late. It's so funny that you that you frame it that way because I've been doing this podcast for just a few months now, but it just feels like people who are looking at data from the outside think that the goal of it is to really find concrete answers. And everyone who works in inside data is really about just – Finding the smarter questions to ask
1: mm-hmm. yeah, I agree and and um, we we have a wealth of data, and one of the things we 're trying to figure out is how to
0: use it all, so your data helps discover that this bird exists and maybe start to get a sense of its population. How does the conservation process kick so, in gear? Yeah.
1: so first is discovering a rare species, okay, you discover rare species, then you have to figure out what are the problems with it how 's it doing, and what are the what are the threats that it's facing then there are a number of techniques. There are a lot of people working on different techniques to restore habitats, to um, to basically protect endangered species. So what we need to do is pick some techniques, test them, and have a good metric of success or of outcomes, so you can say, "Aha! Removing rats from this island had a really quick impact on um, you know activity rates at the island we have more uh, potential breeders that are visiting in the Aleutians an island called uh, used to be called rat island um, Island conservation the Nature Conservancy and the Fish and Wildlife Service um, got rid of rats on that island and it been renamed to Howada, which is um, it's
0: a uh, native name. I mean, we've only been talking for half an hour, but it feels like, to me, the number one rule should just be get rid of rats.
1: You, oh, yeah. I you just did know. your job for you. You totally did. And and then measure it. Right. <laughs> and then measure it. You do that.
2: Thanks
0: again to Matthew McCown and everyone at Conservation Metrics for taking the day to go hiking and show us around the office. On our website, there's lots more. We posted a bunch of those spectrograms so you can go see those alongside audio of the different birds. There's also a few pictures of the mirrorlet. if you want to see this thing, the sensor, and more. Check it out, 538.com slash podcasts. What's The Point's editor is Chadwick Matlin. Our video producer is Ryan Nantel. Special thanks this week to Simone Landon. Sarah Patterson is our intern. Joel Werner helped mix and produce this episode. My name is Jody Avergan. You can email me, podcasts at 538.com. I'm also on Twitter at Jody Avergan. And I think I just managed to join Facebook like last night for the first time ever. So track me down and like me, I guess. Our music is by Rishikesh Hirway, who also hosts the Song Exploder podcast. You can find a link to download our theme song on our website. Be sure to subscribe to What's the Point in iTunes or your favorite podcast client and give us a rating or a review. It really does help others discover the show. Thanks for listening. See you soon. What's the point, listeners? I'm Chadwick Matlin.
2: I'm Kate Fagan.
0: I'm Neil Payne. And together, we make up the crew of Hot Takedown, 538 Sports Podcast. Kate, how would you describe the show if you have to do it in like five seconds?
2: It's freaking awesome.
0: Okay, Neil? We take down hot takes. Look at that. That's we- sort of the title. Good point. <laughs> so if you want to hear us talk about the week in sports news and what people are talking about in an uninformed way and hear about the data and the stats and the analytics that take them down... Subscribe in the iTunes store. Search for Hot Takedown to find us. We'll talk to you then.
2: Do it.